A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 192, Feeling Blank. Last time, we covered the brief reign of Isaac Komnenos, who tried to cut down on domestic spending in order to address the financial crisis afflicting the empire. Isaac's goal was to restore funds to the army, whose pay had been cut via the debasement of the gold currency. When Isaac fell ill, he nominated his friend and fellow general, Constantine Ducas, to be his replacement. Over the course of the next eight years, Turkic raids smashed across the eastern borderlands, sacking both Melitene and Ani, two of Byzantium's most important frontier cities. Strangely, though, the sources remain largely silent about the emperor's response to this menace. What was going on back in the palace? Was Ducas asleep at the wheel, or had he chosen not to react for some other reason? Constantine Ducas is something of a mystery to us. The Ducas clan were an established eastern military family with a base in Paphlagonia. For those of you who are binge listening, he does seem to be descended from the same Ducas family who rebelled under Leo VI. And uh, FYI, in Greek that name should sound more like Thukas, but I'll continue with the pronunciation we've established. We're told that Constantine X was in his early 50s when he became emperor, but there's little else said about him. Presumably he was a general, but we've yet to find any evidence of where or when he served. So we have a man with a similar background, at a similar age to his friend and predecessor, Isaac Komnenos. And yet the vigour and martial spirit that Isaac demonstrated seemed to dissipate once Ducas took over. The identity of our new empress gives us our first clue about this dichotomy. She was Evthokia Makremvolitisa, and she will play a big part in our story in the coming years. For now, all we need to know is that she was the niece of the recently deposed patriarch Michael Kirularios. As we talked about last time, Isaac had gone after some of the financial privileges of the church and had then forced the patriarch out of office. This caused waves amongst the capital's elite, and by virtue of his family connection to the archbishop, 
Ducas would have been intimately acquainted with those complaining bitterly about Komnenos's interference and economizing. It was now over two years since the Eastern armies had put Isaac on the throne. The troops had long ago returned to their bases. If Ducas was going to survive in power, he needed the cooperation of the civilian elites. He clearly felt the best course of action was to buy political support and soothe the egos of those who were feeling stung by Isaac's cutbacks. Ducas therefore issued the traditional donatives and bonuses that were expected of a new sovereign, and then restored the honours and promotions that Komnenos had cancelled. This wasn't a complete reversal of Isaac's economies, but it dispersed any surplus that had been scraped together. We might well shake our heads at this, but legitimacy always costs something. And to be fair to Ducas, a large conspiracy to assassinate him formed shortly after his coronation. So he was correct when he sensed dissatisfaction in the capital. The plot seems to have been organised by the city prefect. A riot was started while the emperor was attending the Feast of St. George at the Mangana complex, the one recently established by Monomachos. The plotters knew that on hearing the commotion, Ducas would run for the harbour and climb aboard the imperial yacht. The crew were in on the conspiracy and would sail out into the Marmara and drown the Vasilefs. But in all the commotion, the emperor boarded a different vessel whose crew loyally rowed him back to the palace. Constantine's brother, John Ducas, then led troops through the city to restore order. After an experience like that, Ducas was unlikely to make swinging cuts in the government's local expenditure. Better to keep everyone happy and preserve your head. As I mentioned last episode, Michael Pselos was extremely close to the new regime. He was good friends with the Caesar John Ducas and began writing propaganda for the emperor. He penned the speech which Constantine gave upon coming to power, in which he promised to promote justice and compassion. By all accounts, the emperor lived up to his word, spending plenty of time in the law courts settling disputes himself. None of our historians fault the emperor for his personal character, all agreeing that he was kind and pious, but both Selos and Ataliates imply that on finding the treasury empty, Ducas decided to cut spending on the military in order to balance the books. As I said last time, our sources fail us when it comes to detail. Pselos notes that he and the emperor disagreed about military spending. He says that Constantine preferred diplomacy to war, which could be a generic statement about his lack of investment in the army. Or it could imply that Ducas thought another treaty with the Seljuks was the way forward rather than trying to fight them which is a perfectly valid argument when it comes to dealing with steppe riders, but rather ignores the strategic reality, in this case that the bands of raiders spreading out over the eastern borders were not under the direct control of the sultan. <laughs> 
Our other contemporary historian, the urban judge, Ataliates, claims that the emperor discharged the most experienced soldiers because they had higher salaries and left those that remained poorly equipped. This sounds like rhetoric, in part because it's vague, but also because troops bought their own gear with their salaries. They were not supplied by the state. Maybe it's a comment on the debased coinage not having the same purchasing power it once did, but that's probably reaching. As for discharging troops, it's hard to know what that really means. The Civil War of 1057 had killed a lot of experienced Roman soldiers. They would have to be replaced by either raw recruits or mercenaries. Is it possible that Ducas declined to replace some in order to save money? It's all speculation. The one firm piece of evidence we have comes from the sack of Annie. Here, as we talked about last time, the local governor offered to forego his court salary in order to secure the appointment. That is a clear case of economising on the military budget. So presumably, Ducas was looking for other ways to cut corners with defence spending in order not to debase the coinage any further. Again, we might shake our heads at Ducas and blame him for the sack of Annie. But similar deals had been made in the borderlands before. The Romans were generally happy to leave important cities in the hands of foreign potentates, or to pay for defence by handing over the commercial taxes of an area rather than putting someone directly on the payroll. What's stranger from our point of view is that no army marched into Armenia in the aftermath of the raid. Was Ducas saving on campaign pay, figuring that, hey, the damage is done, why waste money on visiting the aftermath? Though that might sound financially sensible, it makes no military sense. Across the mountains, every local lord agitated against his neighbours, always looking to increase his slice of the pie. If the Romans didn't turn up, then the locals would become more aggressive and acquisitive. A show of force may only be a show, but without it things would get less and less stable. Two centuries of constant pressure from Byzantium on the mountains should have made that clear. We do hear of one individual being dismissed from the army, well, executed actually, and this was Hervé Frangopoulos, the Norman commander who went AWOL two episodes ago. You may recall that he asked for a pay rise from Michael VI, and when he was denied it, he left his post and joined forces with some Turkic raiders. In typical Byzantine fashion, Hervé was arrested, but eventually restored to his position. His competence and ability to recruit Western mercenaries was considered too valuable to ignore. However, in 1063, he was again accused of conspiring with the Turks and was sentenced to death. Through his story, we perhaps get a sense of the dissatisfaction creeping through the eastern armies. Their pay had been slashed, they were dealing with increasingly dangerous raids, and they were receiving no support from the emperor. It was beginning to feel like things were falling apart. 
Adding to our confusion over Ducas's decision-making is the fact that he actually sent reinforcements to Italy during this period. Back in 1053, the Norman invaders had defeated both a papal coalition put together to stop them and the Byzantine garrison of Bari. This had left them free to pursue their conquest of Calabria, the toe of Italy. By 1060, this had been more or less completed, including the capture of Reggio, the Byzantine regional capital. As we talked about during the Great Schism episode, the papacy changed its tune in 1059. The reformist party in Rome saw an opportunity to sanctify the opportunistic violence of the Normans and use it to bring southern Italy back under their authority. The leader of the Normans, Robert Giscard, was given the title of Duke of Apulia, Calabria, and Sicily, a designation which made it clear where Norman ambitions were headed. I should point out that officially Rome and Constantinople continued to work towards friendlier relations, but here in Italy, the papacy just decided to deny all Byzantine claims to these lands and hand them over to their own newly minted vassals. Giscard moved on Sicily in 1060. The divisions in the Arab population that we witnessed during Maniarches' invasion had now divided the emirate into three factions, fertile ground for the Normans to divide and conquer. While they were away, Ducas sent troops who helped recapture Tarentum and other parts of the heel of Italy. But once Giscard returned, normal service was resumed. By the time Annie fell, the Normans were well on their way to reducing the Byzantine presence in the peninsula to just the city of Bari. A unit of Varangians was sent to stiffen the defences there, but without more aid, the Byzantine presence in Italy was nearing its end. Italy had not been an imperial priority for a long time now. Not since the Pechenegs had crossed the Danube, and rightly so. But the fact that Ducas sent any aid while ignoring the Eastern Front is interesting. Perhaps he felt that further raids in the East were inevitable, and that the army would just need to adapt, whereas it was just about affordable to prop up a token presence in Italy until the situation there improved. Again, we're speculating. Giving us a little more insight into Ducas's attitude to the Eastern Front is the fact that he began a series of persecutions against non-Chalcedonian Christians. Yes, you heard me. In the midst of a developing crisis in which non-Orthodox Christians were on the front line, Constantine gave the order to harass the leadership of the Monophysite and Armenian churches. Reports come to us via the Syriac sources saying that their patriarch was arrested and taken from Melitene to Constantinople, dying en route, while the governor of Melitene was then instructed to evict all non-Chalcedonians from the city and burn their books. From the Armenian sources, we're told of a similar detention for their Catholicos, who spent three years at the capital supposedly debating issues of doctrine with the Orthodox establishment. Now, being sort of national histories, we are a little sceptical of the detail, but these stories probably have a lot of truth in them. 
We've seen non-Orthodox leaders dragged to the capital before, but to expel all Monophysites from Melitene would have created a ghost town, so I don't think we need to believe that these actions had a huge effect on ordinary people. Yet again, we find ourselves in the realm of speculation. Most likely, these orders were given in response to pressure from Orthodox clergymen. Ducas was trying to mend fences with the church after what happened to Kirularios, and Orthodox bishops in the eastern provinces were regularly complaining about the behaviour of all the non-Chalcedonians living in their sees. Presumably, Ducas acted to satisfy them. Did he also act because Annie and Melitene had just been sacked, and some suggested that if those cities were fully orthodox, they might have been saved? Maybe, but I doubt that thinking went very far. That was the stuff of rabble-rousing sermons, and not imperial strategy meetings. The final action of Ducas's reign, that we know of, came shortly after the sack of Annie. That September 1064, more steppe nomads crossed the Danube. As you know, the Pechenegs had migrated south because of pressure from the east. Now that pressure came to bear on the Balkans. The tribes who raided Roman territory that autumn were also Turkic-speaking. You'll probably read their designation in English as Ogus. They began raiding around the Black Sea coast before defeating the army of Bulgaria that was sent to stop them. This could explain why no relief force was sent to Annie. Perhaps Ducas called up eastern troops to help defend the west. We're told that the emperor did eventually saddle up and march for Thrace, but by the time he did, the danger was over. Most of the Ogus returned home, those that stayed behind fell prey to various camp sicknesses, as often happened to steppe tribes unused to European conditions. In their ailing state, the local Pechenegs and Roman garrisons began picking them off. The emperor returned home to give thanks for this victory. This was another damaging raid that battered the already worn infrastructure of the Danube region, it seemed that no corner of the empire was safe. That's all we know about Ducas's reign before he passed away in 1067. What do we make of all this? Particularly in the context of the increasing Turkic attacks and the accusation that the emperor cut military spending at a time when it was pretty clear that more, not less, was needed. In defence of Ducas, the silence of our sources really does him no favours. There are no helpful Turkish or Arabic histories covering this period. There are Armenians as well as Romans, but none of them give any clear indication of the size of Turkic raiding parties or any detail on the day-to-day -day politics of Constantinople, either of which might help us make sense of the lack of response to these attacks. The most forthcoming of the sources, Ataliates, may be biased against Constantine. Ataliates will join our next emperor, Romanos Theogenes, on the campaigns which lead to the defeat at Manzikert. Ataliates' sympathies are with Romanos. It would suit his history to present Ducas as having run the armies down 
in order to lighten the burden of failure which fell on Romanos. The anecdote about the cost-cutting with the defences of Annie provides evidence to support his claims, but it proves nothing. So one could conclude that Ducas did little wrong, that if he did cut the military budget, it didn't destroy the empire's capacity to fight. After all, we saw imperial resistance to the majority of these raids. And Romans always struggled to fight horse archers. There's nothing novel about that. The case for the prosecution finds its evidence in silence. Despite most of the sources damning Monomachos for his passivity, they all revealed repeatedly the existence of his armies on the march to whatever trouble spot had just been hit. Pselos defensively declares, on a couple of occasions, that Ducas defended the empire from barbarians. But if so, why not mention those campaigns? Even if they ended in failure, you can always fudge a little. Instead, we have silence. Ducas seems to have enjoyed an untroubled reign after that initial assassination attempt. Add in the persecution of the empire's religious minorities, and a different picture emerges. One of Ducas, the general, turning into yet another passive civilian emperor, staying at home, acquiescing to the demands of the elites and the church in order to maintain his throne, perhaps refusing to send troops from their bases, knowing that he would be paying them simply to show their faces, since they were not quick enough to actually catch the Turks. I don't have a clear sense of which image is more accurate. What we do know, though, is that Turkic raids only intensify after the emperor's death, so his policy of passivity, if it was one, did not work. And though this gets into the realm of pop psychology, it's worth noting that Ducas's eldest son, Michael, was, by all accounts, completely unfit for office. As in, he was a bookish and well, passive young man, to the point where he seemed happy for anyone but him to make decisions about the Empire's future. Assuming this characterization is accurate, then it doesn't say a lot about Ducas's succession planning. As we'll see in a moment, he made great efforts to protect the right of his son to succeed him, and yet seems to have done little to prepare him for this awesome responsibility. I can't remember feeling so blank when summing up an emperor's reign. We've had plenty of figures who we knew little about, but they almost always reigned for a shorter period or oversaw little change. Ducas is a key figure in understanding the coming Byzantine collapse, and yet there's almost nothing concrete to cling to. In the winter of 1066 the Vasilevs fell ill. The sickness did not pass, and by spring the following year, everyone knew that he was on his way out. Ducas and Evthokia had six children, three boys and three girls, the last two born in the purple. The emperor was understandably keen to preserve the throne for them, and seems to have viewed his wife as the main obstacle to this goal. Why? Because if she were to remarry, a new emperor could push his children aside. 
Evthokia seems to have been a strong-willed woman, so he may have suspected that she would seek out a new partner. But it's equally possible that he simply feared that a fellow general would force himself into the palace and form the union whether she liked it or not. As I mentioned earlier, Ducas' eldest son, Michael, was also a problem. He was already in his late teens, a time when other men had assumed control of the government, but Michael was so ill-prepared for the office that his parents don't seem to have seriously considered this as an option. Their next eldest boy, Andronicus, was only seven, and so the dying Ducas took steps to try and prevent his family unit from being broken up. He made Evthokia swear an oath never to remarry. She had to proclaim this and sign a written document in front of the patriarch, the rest of the family, and the assembled senators of the capital, who then all had to sign it themselves. We actually have the text of the oath, which you would think would just be about swearing in front of Christ and God and the Trinity, etc., but instead Ducas calls upon the whole heavenly host, Mary, the angels, prophets, apostles, and saints, to all witness this, along with the sky, earth, and other elements, which is interesting. And should his wife break her vow, then let her be torn apart, burnt alive, and thrown in the sea. Charming. Next time, Evthokia will marry the general Romanos Theogenes, who will try to revive the Roman army. Theogenes will resurrect the spirit of Heraclius, racing around the empire, putting out fires, and trying to remind the Turks of the strength of Byzantium. Unfortunately, those campaigns will bring the emperor face to face with the Seljuk sultan on the fields outside the city of Manzikert for a confrontation that will be in all the history books. Join me next time, as that boulder which the Romans have been pushing up the hill becomes too heavy to hold once again. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 